Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Scher. Today, we're gonna do another compilation episode, but this one specifically focusing on an experiment run by Dr. Nick Norwitz and some of his colleagues, some of his medical school, medical school colleagues at Harvard Medical School, an experiment where they all wore CGMs and kind of saw what they saw, right? Experiencing everything they did from the way they slept and their stress and of course their nutrition and what that did to their blood sugar and their CGMs and tied it into a class and further discussion and exploration of the other aspects of metabolic health. Now, on the one hand, it's a really cool experiment brought on by self-motivated medical students who really are learning a lot about how to use CGMs, how to talk to their patients about it and what they can mean, but not without some controversy, which we get into in this, in, uh, in this episode as well. Controversy about appropriate versus inappropriate use of CGMs um, and what constitutes healthy versus unhealthy responses. And if that was really characterized well enough in this study and if it's being communicated well enough to the public. So we're going to have interviews with Nick Norowitz, with Mark Seisler, and uh, with Dr. Melanie Honig, who is the attending. So let's get into them one by one, see what they had to say, what their experience was, and what their take-homes were. First, we're gonna hear from the paper's main author, Dr. Nick Norowitz, who's also basically the originator of the idea. Um, and so he has a PhD already and is now in medical school at Harvard. And he's not your average medical student though. He's already got a number of publications and he's involved in so many different areas focusing on metabolic health. So much of his efforts is on metabolic health and sort of changing the way that metabolic health is taught and, and thought of. And him being a medical student, he's sort of trying to change it from the inside. And that's one of the great things I love about this story, how this was really just him and his, his fellow students just having discussions about metabolic health. And that's where this whole study idea came from. So, so let's hear from Dr. Nick Norowitz and what he thought about the study, why he wanted to do it, what his lessons were, and what he thinks about some of the controversy. Well, Nick, welcome back to the Diet Doctor podcast. It's great to have you again. Thanks for having me, Brett. Excited to be here. I think it's awesome that you're back again talking about metabolic health because the first time you were on our podcast, you were on this compilation episode talking about metabolic health. And now here you are back with more metabolic health nuggets and news to give us. So this time with a new study and of course, brand new controversy that surrounds many studies and publications. The short, I guess, intro is that you did an experiment with, your co with some colleagues, with medical students at Harvard, where they experienced CGMs, and you put it in the context of metabolic health and how CGMs and blood sugar can relate to metabolic health. So that's like the really basic outline. But I, what I wanna get to is what was your motivation in, in starting this what were you hoping to achieve? And then we'll talk about some more of the details and what you actually learned from it. So to take a 50,000 foot view, when I um, came into medical school, given my personal experience and my research experience, I had built a real passion for metabolic health, as you know. You know I think it's you know, focusing on metabolism, lifestyle, nutrition. Um, sir, well, I'm not even gonna get on my soapbox about why metabolic health is important. You've probably heard that yeah. from other people, but um, myself, proclaimed goal was to kind of try to plant a seed for, you know, this is interesting and something we should be talking about a little bit more um, amongst my peers. I didn't want to be a pusher, but I just kind of wanted to, where, you know, the opportunities arose, plant seeds. Like, what about this study to, you know, look at things in a little bit of a different way with respect to this disease, X, Y, Z. Um, and what ended up happening over the course of time, and I, I, I don't, I don't actually completely attribute this to me planting seeds as much as some might have already been planted. 
as we were progressing through our curriculum, there was will amongst the students to kind of look in a lot more to diet and nutrition um, mm. than is naturally incorporated into the curriculum. So over the course of time, there was just a gravity drawing a group of students together who had this common interest. Yeah. There was kind of an inflection point where um, uh, after one class, a student proposed that we had a discussion around metabolic health. Um, asked if I would get up and just say a few things. I talked, people stayed after class, and we just really got excited about this concept of doing something. We hadn't defined what around metabolic health, and we percolated on it for a while because, you know, I, I, the curriculum is not going to change like that. It's mm -hmm. very well structured, very dense, and it's, you know, um, difficult to reorganize. I just gave, I gave a little presentation of the analogy I was using. It's kind of like, I don't know if you ever played that little board game rush hour with the little cards. You have to like, okay. No, no, well, no, sorry. <laughs> another analogy would be like Tetris. Like it's hard to squeeze things in and, and move yes. things around. So um, I wasn't in the position to, you know, incorporate nutrition to the curriculum very easily. But let me pause you there for a second. I'm sorry to interrupt, but, you know, I've talked to so many doctors, but mostly older doctors, and they say, yeah, we got no nutrition training. We got maybe an hour. Has any of that changed? Or I, I guess we should start with an update. Like what's new in nutrition training at Harvard Medical School? Is it still pretty poor in terms of the time and, and quality? And it's poor. There are systematic yeah. reviews on medical educations around, around the world, and people say it's poor. Doctors say it's poor. Medical students say it's poor. We had like one optional session where we got a MyPlate handout. That's yeah. kind of the quality. There is will, I think, among the faculty and more broadly. There was with the McGovern Commission in May basically calling for adding nutrition to medical education. Um, yeah. So there's a will amongst the faculty. People want to incorporate it. It's just logistically difficult. Um, and obviously, I can't redesign the curriculum. I can give feedback on little bits of points. But I was thinking, you know, what can I do? And um, so the idea came is like, well, there's the opportunity to get creative here. We have to engage with nutrition every single day or almost every day if you fast, I guess, by virtue of being human. And so why not give students a tool to kind of motivate them to think more about nutrition and immerse in it in kind of like a, a hands-on metabolic immersion lab type experience. Yeah. And so I kind of floated the idea. I'm like, you know, I've played with CGMs before. They're pretty cool. Um, what do you guys think about me getting some CGMs? People got really excited about it. Um, I talked to the faculty, we went through all the, the right routes and just, you know, with a little bit of legwork, we, you know, went through the IRB and, and, uh, all the necessary processes, got approval, got support from the school. Um, and we had just some great supports outside. I got the CGMs via Dexcom through Rob Sives, who served, you obviously know Rob and he served as our, um, clinician for the project. So he did all the health and safety screenings. People could check in with him. And then we just got it running. The protocol originally was, and it was always intended to be multimodal. I can go through the trainings and stuff in, in, in a bit. I think that'll kind of pop up more when we talk about controversies, but um, the CGM was like a catalyst to engage with metabolism. So we were having journal clubs where we were discussing, you know, primary literature that was interesting to students. People were dietary tracking, sleep logging, and um, it just became a great community experience. Some of the most consistent feedback we got at the end is how fun it was to kind of nucleate around this that, you know, to do it on your own would have been kind of isolating to do it together was really cool. I kind of think of the analogy of, you know, the Dr. Seuss book with star belly sneeches, like the CGMs were on, people were walking around, like check out my CGM and look at <laughs> metrics. It was cool. And then 
um, enthusiasm really started to build because it's something that's pretty visible in class. So when people are talking about it, you know, an, another group of students will be like, well, what's that? What are you doing? And so we started getting more and more requests. And um, we tried to, exp I, I was limited in how many CGMs I and my team could acquire and disseminate, but we ended up dis uh, distributing to um, as much as 40 students. Um, and then good. getting some um, data qualitative and quantitative in terms of feedback, and it was overwhelmingly positive. And so um, that's where we are now. Students just had a, a good time with it. They were attesting that it improved their understanding of their own metabolic health, their enthusiasm for metabolic health, and the relevance they see with respect to medicine. They said it would help them better serve their patients. In fact, we were building, I would think, patient advocates in real time. We had people in clinic with their own CGMs, then helping patients acquire CGMs. Um, including yeah. type B, which is really cool. Um, and so, you know, people got enthusiastic about it. Some changed their lifestyle, some didn't. So so CGMs were the main tool, but it sounds like they were part of the program and not the entire program, if that's an accurate statement, because you talked about lectures and, and discussions and other things. So CGMs tell you about blood sugar. What else did you include in the educational part of this, um, this study? The screening labs kind of doubled for fodder for students to engage in metabolic health. So, you know, we had done a lot of the basic science um, and, and metabolism curriculum, interpreting labs and stuff, and we got an extremely comprehensive set of labs. Rob ordered that and he talked with the students about it um, so that, you know, you could take that along with the CGM data. And for those who wanted, you know, share data, talk about how to interpret your own labs, because we were already doing this as exercises, you know, in pathology as part of our curriculum but now you have your own lab to look at. So what am I, this, you know, triglyceride mean, my thyroid mean, and some students, and we knew this would probably happen, were identifying areas of their health that um, could be improved or identifying underlying diseases that they didn't know they had. So um, one person had um, Hashimoto's. Hmm. And it's funny because he actually just got the, 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 um, the diagnosis via the antibodies. Um, right before we had our thyroid session and we were doing ultrasounds on each other and you could see it also on the ultrasound. So he was going to find out. Anyway. But, yeah. you know, common things you'd expect, like um, nine out of 13 in the original core cohort were um, vitamin D insufficient, four were vitamin D deficient, and they just started supplementing with vitamin D spontaneously. Some of them reported feeling a lot better. Um, we have some students that are from abroad or from near the equator and now they're up in Boston. So it's not really surprising there is vitamin D deficiency, but then we can talk about that. Um, mm. So in terms of the education, um, the trainings included education around how to interpret glycemic responses in different contexts. So the effects of exercise, cortisol awakening response, carbohydrates, things like that. Um, and then a lot of it was really student interest driven during the weekly meetings. So um, what we do is I would send out a bunch of paper topics to vote on and students could also submit topics for the vote. And we'd say like, you know, there are these new papers in cell, which one is most interesting to you? Um, then we send it out, we all read it and then we go discuss it. So an example okay. for was um, there was the, the Zevi et al piece 2015 in cell about personalized glycemic responses and using CGMs to personalize diets for patients. And kind of we dug through the literature of that. That is actually the same team that just published the artificial sweeteners piece. That's oh, also right. on Twitter. Yeah. They're phenomenal. The white spin is 
So I guess I guess the point or one of the points of my question though is like blood sugar does not equal all of metabolic health. So, you know, it doesn't measure insulin, it doesn't measure triglycerides and HDL and, and waist to height problem. ratio. And so, but you did all that as part of the baseline and, and, and sort of baked it into the discussion about metabolic health and CGMs were sort of the catalyst. Is that an accurate that's, statement? That's accurate. And what I would say is, you know, the criticism could arise and has arisen that um, CGMs don't give you a picture of metabolic health comprehensively. And I agree with that 100%. But at the same time, in terms of, you know, accessible, continuous monitoring metrics, that's what we got hmm. um, at the time being. You know, if we have a, you know, continuous cholesterol meter, then we'll use that in time. And we're talking about expansions using um, other uh, health wearables like Aura Rings. It's actually very ironic, if you don't mind going on me going on a tiny, tiny tangent just for a sec. Two days after we published our paper a paper came out in um, Nature Biomedical Engineering about a continuous multi-metabolite monitor, which I thought was way far away. But they've yeah. designed this, this continuous multi-metabolite monitor now um, that can detect various metabolites in sweat, calibrates to sodium and body temperature, things like cholesterol, all nine basic amino acids, um, essential amino acids. Like, it's coming up, but right now, like I didn't have that technology. So we have CGMs. It's what I could supply right. as a lowly medical student who has access to some things. And then you, you know, discuss with your peers and, uh, you know, the limitations of the technology doesn't mean you shouldn't use it. It just means it's limited technology. So did you give any goals about what, where people wanted their blood sugar to be? Or is it more just like, here, go forth and see what you learn from it without prescribing specific goals of keeping your blood sugar in a certain range? Yeah, there were no prescriptions by um, any means. I think students, um, I didn't know how people would react. And I was actually really surprised to find that people started to establish their own goals based on how they were feeling. So students mm -hmm. would report like um, that I just feel better when my blood sugar is stable between 70 and 90. I feel better athletically. I feel better like mentally. Um, and in self-reflecting, as I'm sure you've seen people do on like, you know, how they feel at different levels. So what another student was like, when I was feeling lethargic, I thought I was having hypo, um, you know, because people are just like, I'm hypoglycemic, it's just part of the parlance. And then they yeah. would eat, and they realized, yeah. no, that's actually not the case at all. Like I'm not hypoglycemic when I'm tired and I don't then need to compensate by eating. Um, right. And so if you check out the paper in table one, there's a ton of really cool um, quotes um, by students just reflecting on their experience. And I think Another positive aspect is that it knock on positive experiences on health behaviors. So not only some people changing their diet, but then they were sleeping better and exercising more consistently um, just because they were then committed to their metabolism broadly, because that's kind of what we were discussing. Yeah. So I guess one, one, one pushback, I was going to say potential pushback. No, it's a clear pushback is that um, the goal for health, for metabolic health doesn't have to be a flat CGM line, that there yeah. are natural blood sugar variations that can be completely consistent with a healthy lifestyle. And we don't want to sort of encourage that you should eat and live in a way where your blood sugars never increase. So let me just ask you first, do you think that's a valid concern when giving people CGMs that they might interpret it in that way? Broadly speaking with the lay public, yes. Okay. Now, did you do something to, with your cohort to help them understand that, um, especially considering 
the population that they're medical students, not the general population. Yeah, that was included in the training um, where we talked about, I think I mentioned earlier, like, you know, other things affect blood sugar, cortisol awakening response, stress, how you slept the night before, Um, you know, and there are normal glycemic variations that probably are healthy if you're eating, you know, if you have like, you know, a healthy young athlete like we do and they have a banana before a workout and their blood sugar bumps a little bit, that's fine. Yeah. Um, And we were, you know, constantly telling people that, like I was reinforcing the point consistently, even though I think they knew, I mean, bear in mind, these are smart cookies. Like, you know, we have like a Rhodes scholar who's doing two PhDs and an MD kind of deal. (laughs) You know, they're not your average Joe kind of person. And um, I don't think it really, I mean, people tended to over the, you know, whole study. Yeah. There was a slight reduction in carbohydrate intake, but it was mostly, you know, it wasn't like, it wasn't like I'm going to avoid broccoli. It was like yeah. you know, our, our ve- we have you know a vegan participant. He's still vegan at the end of the study. He's just like I actually find I do better eating fewer tro- tropical fruits and maybe more berries. It's like that. There's one person in the study who was low carb. Not me. I wasn't a participant. For clarity, I actually wasn't a, myself a participant. I refused myself. Um, but then there were three vegetarians and a vegan, and the, yeah. they were still vegetarian and vegan at the end of the study. They just had a little bit of um, you know insight, and it was it was there's a lot of nuance to how behaviors impact your um, glycemic variability, not just in a point in time, but over time. And we discussed that too. So people yeah. were noticing when I slept poorly or I was stressed, that just made me more reactive, for example, right. or when we were talking about the, the, you know, the Zevi paper, where we're kind of breaking down the figures and it's like, look here, if you have more fiber in the short term, that actually increases glycemic variability in the long term, it decreases it kind of think on those scales. Right. So if you had, if someone had like a plate of lentils, um, and some berries and some root veggies and their blood sugar goes up to 130 and then comes right back down within like 45 minutes, there are a couple ways to interpret that. One could be, oh my God, my blood sugar went from 80 to 130. That's a variability of 50. That's concerning. The other way to interpret it would be like, oh, look, it came right back down within 45 minutes. It's a totally normal response. I can keep eating those foods and not be a concern. Was that level of detail sort of, you know, educated yeah. among the group? I guess my point would be that I, I feel the second interpretation is probably the more accurate interpretation, even though they both could, they, they both are accurate, but I think the second is maybe the more helpful, I guess. You're saying if it has a spike and it comes down quickly, that's indicative of a healthy response? Yeah, like one is 130 truly a spike, and then if it comes down within 45 minutes, it's still a sign that you have good metabolic health yeah. and you're not on the road to insulin resistance. It's effectively what you just described is effectively what an oral glucose tolerance test is, and we all know what oral glucose tolerance tests are. Um, I would obviously say you have to take it in the context. Is it a healthy metabolic? Is it healthy to have, you know, a giant slice of cake and go up to 150 and come down quickly? Well, like maybe it's a challenge and your response is healthy. It doesn't mean it's a healthy behavior. So there's some just logic built in there. Um, But I think it just made people more conscious of the decisions they made. And that's what people were saying. I'm more cognizant, more aware. And that doesn't mean if there's free food, medical students aren't going to take it. (laughs) Providing CGMs was not going to overpower the the influence of free food. Let me tell you. Um, But um, yeah, it just, just, I think gives people information. And one thing that I, 
we, we discussed because I have my peers involved in, in the design of the questionnaires and concerns going in is, you know, um, food is integrated with culture and people were worried. Like, you know, I, I feel like having a CGM might make me enjoy food less because we'll be focusing on, on all the time. So that was included in the, um, the follow-up where people could kind of comment on, were you affected negatively in that way? Nobody yeah. reported that. Even the people that had raised that as a potential concern, which actually to me was somewhat surprising. Um, I thought somebody might, and that was a small group and it was self-selected. Um, so that doesn't mean that's not a possibility. You have to know yourself right. and whether or not it'll be a good tool for you. But we right. didn't see that at this point in time. Yeah. And what was the response from some of the attendings that you worked with? You know, because they've, you know, they've been around for a while. They should probably know about CGMs and the experience of CGMs. Were, were they also sort of surprised and maybe a little educated by this whole process? I think they were really excited to see students excited. Yeah. And 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 engaging in something that was student motivated. I think that's just the, you know, the the way my my professors are. Um, I had built a relationship with a few who opened up to me about their own, you know, experiences or family members' experiences with low carb or curing their cat with a ketogenic diet kind of thing. So I think <laughs> on a lot of their radar, surprisingly, and um, I think they were excited to have students engaging with it and thinking about it. Um, but um, yeah, we weren't per se going in depth with our CGM data to professors one-on-one. -on -one. So I don't think they were necessarily surprised by the findings. I did talk with a few broadly about the stuff in the supplement we ended up publishing, like the C-peptide levels across the group, the glucagon levels, which are all just kind of interesting with respect yeah. to what reference ranges are. So like the majority of the group, I think it was a majority or the, a large minority had C-peptides that were below the reference range. They were below normal, which is like, mm -hmm. that's interesting when interpreting it with it, like, because when we're going into clinic, when we're seeing a C-peptide, that's going to get flagged as abnormal, you know? Or right. one really interesting thing, this was actually interesting to um, our endo professors and our group at large. I think the, the biggest downside of the CGMs for a quarter of the students um, was the alarm. Because, yeah. no, the CGM alarm, you can turn off until 55. And during the night, a lot of people, these are normal, healthy people, were going below 55. And in lecture, we're like taught, you know, if you're below 55, that is a problem. Sure. Like and, and, and there's not a lot of studies with CGMs in healthy young people. So right. what we were seeing is actually a lot of us were dipping below 55 quite normally and even into the 40s. Yeah. Which is that a normal response? That's just kind of curious. That was an interesting thing. So that's um, interesting, right? If you're well, I, were those people in ketosis who were in the forties? No, no, um, not necessarily. There was, okay, nobody was on a ketogenic diet. One person was low carb, but not ketogenic. Yeah. Um, so no. Um, that is interesting. That's low. Uh, it is low. Yeah. But everybody. So <laughs> anyway, small sample size, but just interesting fodder for for thought. Yeah. So what about your impression on some of the, the Twitter controversy? You know, Twitter is Twitter. It, you know, people maybe say things in Twitter that they wouldn't say in person and maybe don't have all the information and all the space to, to air their, their, their full opinion. But were you surprised by that? Initially, yes. In retrospect, no. I think my impression was there were a, a couple of years ago, there was a big blow up on Twitter around CGMs for the lay public. And that predates my involvement on Twitter. 
So I think the pump was primed. Yeah. Um, and then this got conflated with just general opinions around whether or not healthy people should have CGMs. Whereas really what we were doing is applying CGMs for medical education. I think, like I said to you before we recorded, I'm not advocating for me taking a basket of CGMs or walking around Boston, throwing them out like candy, neither. And that's not what I did. Um, I think it requires, you know, somewhat targeted use, but I think medical education is a potential use case if you, you know, train young future doctors well. And I think there are a lot of upsides with really next to no downsides. Um, we talked about a few of the upsides just with engagement, but um, as I mentioned before, patient advocacy. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of uh, physicians now that we're working under don't know that much about this technology. And so like, for example, we had one patient, this was in the first week of the study and um, she came in and she was all excited because she's like, Nick, I was in clinic and this patient with type one came in and um, he saw my CGM and started to ask about it. turns out he was very nervous about getting a CGM. He didn't know what it was. He thought it would hurt X, Y, Z. She was showing it to him and then he got really excited. And then with the attending, they actually ended up getting him one. So now that yeah. patient won a CGM who otherwise would not have been. Now, I don't know what his outcome was, but presumably it's going to help him. That's the coolest part, I think, about this. Because I know personally, before I started prescribing CGMs to people with type 2 diabetes and prediabetes, I used it on myself first because then I could explain it a lot better and understand it a lot better. Whereas I never had that chance in medical school. And, you know, I guess maybe I, I predated CGMs to a degree, but... Um, at least the common use of them, but having that opportunity just helps you understand it better. You could read in a book what it's about, but to actually have firsthand experience helps you explain it to the patients. And that is the perfect example right there that the patient was nervous about it, but she was able to give him a much more detailed answer and explanation than if she wouldn't have used that CGM presumably. So I think that's awesome. That's, that's such a great outcome there. And one other benefit I think was, I'm calling it now becoming metabolically woke. Like when you're engaging with this, you know, all the time and you're walking around the food environments that we have in hospitals, the things that are, you know, unambiguously dysfunctional, like I've seen a patient, I've said this before, but with diabetes, fasting blood sugar 217 being given chocolate cake and mashed potatoes for lunch. Yeah. And it's like, this is not serving this patient. Um, and if you point that out to someone, like I pointed out to the attending, they're like, you know what, you're right but it's just not something we tend to like, you know, shine the spotlight on. Um, And when you have a bunch of students with CGMs walking around, or maybe if we do an expansion attendings and residents, it's actually a way to maybe start to shift the culture a little bit, which we need to do without being pushy and tisk tisky. But like when you're wearing a CGM and you're walking around and you go to the cafeteria and it's like, you know what? There's like limited amounts of just hard boiled eggs, but like 30 different types of Danish (laughs) And that's kind of like the option we have. And then maybe like on occasion, a mozzarella stick. So, you know, in terms of low carb, like the the food is awful. Yeah. You go to breakfast and it's like DiGiorno's pizza. This doctor's lounge is just full of chips and it's full of uh, donuts and it's absurd. And, you know, it's interesting because if you asked the doctors, do you think this is good for you? They would say no, but they don't, but it's like, what I see is that thought process just doesn't happen. It's just on automatic. But like you're saying, with that CGM and knowing what you're going to see on your CGM, it's that behavioral reinforcement. And that's what I think is so cool. Like in the beginning, most people who start with a CGM 
learn how different foods affect them. But then once you sort of learn that, then it becomes more of the behavioral modification, like the, the accountability partner almost, to, to make you take that extra thought. And I think that's, that's what really strikes me as another great example of, of how this works for people, especially like you're saying, when the, the food in the hospital is terrible. And for medical students and residents who don't necessarily have time to make a meal, you know, a home-cooked meal, right? You're grabbing whatever you can as you're running down the hallway, basically. So it, it does help people wake up to what's going on. So I, I think it's a fantastic intervention and you should be applauded for what you did. And it seems like you you did it in the right way too, not here's your CGM, here's your blood sugar, this is what metabolic health is all about, but this is a part of a bigger discussion on metabolic health. And I think that you should definitely be commended for making it part of that uh, integrative teaching module for sure. Thank you, yeah, no, my the, the faculty and the students made it really easy. Um, there was just the will to have it done, so filled out some forms basically and, and did some organiz organizing, sent some emails and, and here we are. So um, yeah. it's exciting and I think there's a lot of will to move forward. Um, been approached by a couple CGM companies and um, now in talks with hopefully like, you know, some residents at MGH. I would love to do what I call three-dimensional expansion, which is horizontal expansion, other medical schools um, who, are, who are interested. Um, depth of expansion, because you can do other wearables. We have a few like, you know, an aura ring. So what other tools um, can we integrate with the CGM to give a more holistic picture of health? And then the vertical expansion, I think it'd be super cool to do, you know, in our clerkships, you know, the clerkship medical students, the residents at, at different levels and the attendings. Because um, for a few reasons, one, I think all levels could benefit just in terms of education, but then the community aspect. We yeah. found it was really community building um, for the students and to kind of tie different levels um, of medical, um, you know, training together via that community aspect, I think could be really cool. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I was going to ask you what, what was in the future and what the next steps were. And that sounds, that sounds really interesting. And something like the Aura Ring, I think is also really cool because, you know, pe people's patients are going to be using them. Whether you think they're important or helpful or not, people are going to be using them. So to have that experience, to be able to give them the feedback, like, you know, where's the heart rate variability good or where is it maybe a little weak? What does the readiness score really mean? You know, what is it, how does it relate to your sleep and your steps and all like to, to actually have that experience and know it and be able to give that feedback to the patient, I think is really cool. Otherwise they're, they're going to get it online from who knows what kind of resource. So it really helps you sort of keep the, the, the teaching and make it that much deeper. So I think that would be interesting and, and to expand it to, to residents and to attending. So um, it sounds like there are big plans for this being just the first of many. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I'll be around for a while. So I thought, you know, <laughs> have some fun. Um, we'll, we'll see how the conversation evolves, um, you know, just more broadly. It's been extremely positive, I found, within academia, at least in my circles. And that's in juxtaposition to, as you were mentioning before, how, how the conversation evolves in Twitter. I find that in general. I, I mean, I, I know you're, you're an academic as well. It's like, it's very interesting. I, I don't know if you agree to see the distinction between conversations around a particular topic when you're talking, you know, face to face with someone who's an yeah. academic, you, you turn over to the social media. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't really fathom why this is such a, 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 a fiery topic. Well, I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head that the pump was primed with the prior discussion about CGMs in the, in the general healthy public. 
And the reaction was, oh, this is just one more of those to promote a low-carb diet and a flat glucose curve and CGMs in healthy people where we have no evidence saying that this is, you know, benefits outcomes, which is all true, except that it doesn't really apply to the situation because the situation was much broader and deeper and more involved. And if you're, if you just react to the initial, the initial information, I, I can understand why that happened, but hopefully through discussions like this, people are going to understand, oh wait, this was much deeper than just glucose and CGM. And it truly was about metabolic health and it truly was, you know, there were so many other positive experiences. And as long as people know, as long as we're talking about the downsides to CGMs, how everybody should not be using them, and if they are, how they have to know, it's not just a flat line that you're looking for. And there are natural variabilities that are, are full within a healthy lifestyle. As long as we're talking about that, then that's okay. It, it, it's the um, sort of the inappropriate use where that's not talked about. But I, I think you did that perfectly well, the way you explained it and the way you described it in your paper. So. I think the medical students are better off for it. So thank you for doing that. Thank you. Yeah, and thanks a lot for taking the time to join me. And I look for even more. I mean, you're, you, you clearly show the, the will, the desire, and the creativity to, to sort of forge new grounds and get new things out there. So I'm, I'm excited. I know there'll be more coming from you down the line. So yeah, we'll have you back. For sure. Thanks so much. Next, we're going to hear from Mark Seisler, Dr. Mark Seisler. So he's a medical school classmate of Nick Norwich, but he also has a PhD in psychology from Australia. And he was a participant in this study. So we get to hear his experience firsthand as a medical student, what he thought of metabolic health before the study, how the study sort of changed his thought on it, and how it helped frame his thoughts on CGM and wearables and sort of his experience. So let's hear from Mark. Dr. Mark Seisler, thanks so much for joining us today on the Diet Doctor podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah, so we just heard from Nick Norwitz and heard about the study that you participated in. Um, about using the CGMs, learning about metabolic health. So I want to start actually before the study, though, and kind of get an understanding of you as a medical student. So you've got your PhD in psychology, and now you're your second-year medical, uh, medical student. What was your general understanding of metabolic health, and how was it sort of being taught to you as a medical student? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, I think you know, at some level, everyone is exposed to, to metabolic health just by just by living and, and eating. Um, and I would say that a lot of my, um, you know, prior conceptions and uh, beliefs about metabolic health were kind of, uh, at least personally, based on like a calorie in, calorie out kind of perspective. I thought, in general, you know, there are some types of foods that are better than other types of foods. But not really having a mechanistic understanding of uh, the physiology behind that. Um, and then in terms of its integration into the curriculum, uh, I there is a longitudinal nutritional theme, um, which is a new uh, thing as of a year at, at Harvard Medical School. And I think, you know, they're, they're still ironing out how that actually looks and, and where, mm. where it can really fit into to case-based learning. Um, and, you know, I think that as, uh, as Nick has, uh, talked about, you know, we're definitely opportunities to incorporate it a lot more, I think, into the curriculum, um, and a desire for students to recognize that. I think a lot of, um, students in training are trying to understand what kind of strategies there are to optimize health, you know, before in, in a preventative manner, and then also in interventional ways. Uh, when someone is in the hospital, really think about the entire experience um, rather than treating like a specific condition acutely. 
Yeah, I think that's a nice way to sum it up. You know, to we focus so much on here's the pathophysiology, here's the disorder, how do you treat it, and focus a lot less on, well, could we have prevented this from ever happening in the first place? So I think that's a great point. Now, you know, Nick, one of the things that I really liked about the way Nick described it was it sort of seems like it was born just out of a discussion among, you know, medical students talking about metabolic health, and then you just all sort of came up with the idea together, and Nick sort of spearheaded it. Um, but I love it. it. It's the camaraderie and, and the like, you know, we want to learn, we want to do this for ourselves and that really sort of like, like take it, uh, take the initiative to, to do this. So since you've gone through it now, and we, we talked about the, the study design and all that already, but since you've gone through it, what has changed, um, in terms of your perception of metabolic health, um, and I want to hear both from the perspective of the CGMs and from sort of the ancillary discussions and educational materials that you had during this process. Those are great questions. I, I think, and, and to your point, I just want to comment and um, talk about how yeah, inspiring it is to go to, to school and what a privilege it is to um, engage in these kinds of discussions where after class we're you know, excitedly talking about the material and trying to think of you know, how can we um, learn now what, what does exist and kind of think about ways that it might be able to be improved in kind of the longer term. Um, so yeah, that, that's just a, a preemptive um, comment there. But in terms of uh, my experience wearing the CGM, I think it was very enlightening uh, to think about a way to measure some level of the, the influence of what we're eating on our bodies. Um, in near real time in a way that kind of the closest thing that I might have been able to do before that was something like calorie counting um, or kind of over the course of trying out a specific meal timing approach or different foods, you're looking at bodily changes, which takes a a longer interval of time. And there are a lot of other factors that uh, influence that as well. So I think for me, what was really uh, exciting was being able to think about, first of all, how much I learned just by being able to have uh, real-time biofeedback um, yeah. monitor and how, and how fun it was to you know check in and, and think about, oh, well, what did I eat? And this is what happened. And then thinking about that, being a little bit more conscious uh, in the future. Um, and then also from the perspective of someone who might be wearing a CGM for uh, medical purposes to be monitoring um, their blood sugar levels as someone who has uh, diabetes, maybe um, really thinking about how much of a consideration that is all the time to be wearing that. And then, and then even, even factors that were not really related to the metabolic health component necessarily, but just the social element of, having so many people ask me when I'm playing basketball, why are you wearing <laughs> that uh, thing on your arm? Yeah. Uh, and so that learning that perspective and then thinking about what it's like to respond to that question and, and how do you approach it? Uh, I think it in, in discussions with uh, other classmates who participated as well is something that we're going to be carrying into our um, careers as we get along further in training. Yeah. I mean, do you think it's going to make you a better doctor and be able to, uh, you know, empathize more with somebody who's wearing a CGM and has type two diabetes and counsel them better on how to use it? Like, has it really made that kind of impact? I really do believe so. Um, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic, especially because 
within a couple of weeks, uh, I think for the most part, a lot of students felt as though they had some level of understanding of uh, the process. And so it's not like it, it, it's going to take wearing it for years and years to really understand the, um, that element of the experience. Uh, and, and so then I think it, it also humanizes it a little bit where, you know, you, you know that you have kind of your target range of, of glucose and, and where, where you want to be at a, at a certain time um, just for your own goals. And then sometimes life life gets in the way. Uh, and, and I think that, that uh, recognition as well is something that I'm grateful to have had. And, and I do think both for myself and for, um, you know, all students who are able to have this sort of experience, it, it is something that can really positively impact the way that we uh, interface with um, patients and, and think about um, both in terms of the value of uh, CGMs and other, you know, the, the exciting thought is, is incorporating other elements of tracking both metabolic health and other types of right. uh, health and kind of near to real time. And, and that way enabling and, and really empowering patients and even individuals who are in that pre, pre-condition range, right? Um, to really think about and, and be have more information, be, be yeah. working with information as they're making decisions about their health. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You can read all you want about how, you know, poor sleep and increased stress can raise your blood sugar and increase insulin resistance. So it's one thing to read it and it's another thing to live it because I'm sure medical students, uh, from my memory, don't get a lot of sleep and don't exactly have a stress-free lifestyle. So I'm sure you and your colleagues really sort of saw that firsthand, how that can impact blood sugar. And it's so much more impactful to experience it firsthand than just to read it. But the drawback then is, and you know, the concern that came across on, on Twitter and social media is certainly based in, 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 in reality and based in truth in that, in that blood sugar does not equal metabolic health, you know, and that's it. There, there's many other factors. And there is such a thing as normal glucose variation, you know, going up to 120 after eating a meal and coming down within a half an hour is not worse than a meal that keeps it right at 100 the whole time, especially in, in healthy people without without prediabetes or diabetes. So I guess the question is, was that conveyed to you? And do you have that same um, understanding now or has your understanding been shifted more towards blood sugar is the most important part of metabolic health and you know, sort of the end all be all. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I think one thing that was uh, really nice about the way that the study was, um, or th that the experience was kind of um, described initially, and then and then was throughout, uh, was as really a learning experience in terms of the value of being able to monitor something in real time and really think about, uh, you know, how how is this, how are these various elements of life impacting my own body. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and, and one of the most interesting elements of that really was sitting with a, with a group of friends and, and classmates and eating kind of similar meals and then having somewhat different responses yeah. uh, across individuals. And, and it's, and then you start to think about, okay, well, these are the foods and these are the activities that for me make a difference, but that may not apply to everyone. And so having people really be able to uh, discover that themselves, I think is something that's really valuable, more so than kind of blanket guidance or, or whatever it is, which 
to, to an extent is required when there is limited access uh, sometimes to CGMs or other, um, you know, strategies to, to monitor health indicators. Uh, and, and yeah, in terms of the kind of single measure of metabolic health, I, I think in general in medical school and, and in this study, uh, there has been an emphasis on kind of recognizing the, the bigger picture uh, and not really narrowing in too much on a single indicator and recognizing the limitations. I, I think as long as we understand the purpose of why something is being uh, measured or tracked and why a normal range, quote unquote, exists the way that it does. Uh, you know, th those data are, are powerful and, and can be informative without really, um, you know, falling into the misguided notion that it's an end all be all measure. Like, yeah. I think body mass index is another example of that where, uh, yeah, I think most most individuals um, and, and the curriculum has really emphasized, uh, you know, that it is an important measure, but it is designed for one purpose. And, you know, it, it's not a single measure of, of metabolic right. health. Yeah. It's a great analogy using body mass index because, again, for one measure and for, you know, the general population on a bell curve, okay, maybe it makes sense. But for that individual in front of you, you need so much more information. And I'd say the same for glucose. Glucose can be very helpful uh, in many ways, but you want so much more information. The whole point of sort of this personalization concept, I think is important because you learn, so much of what you learn in medical school is about guidelines and what do the guidelines say? And the guidelines are again, based on that bell curve and made for like the general population. But it's so important to understand the individual variability. And yes, we may not have the capacity to treat every single person you know, in the medical system with that individual precision, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't know about it. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't have experienced it. So hopefully the day will come where we can treat people in that way. Um, I just, I hope we can get there faster. So what do you see as sort of the next steps in terms of um, whether it's CGMs or other wearables, other you know, personalizations, other personal experiences, medical students, where do you see this want to go further to help your education and help you become a better physician to take better care of patients in the future? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I mean, I, I think in terms of um, just responding to the first half of what you were saying about the, the potential of this, um, I think it reinforces the importance of thinking about clinical judgment and realizing that, you know, the, the guidances exist, again, for a reason. Um, but ultimately, in terms of the actual practice of medicine, you're working on a N of one basis. And right. so um, each individual really considering the entire clinical picture and, and the patient as an individual and, and all that becomes so much more important. Um, and, and so then that kind of flexibility in terms of modifying treatment plans based on the specific needs of an individual um, it yeah. is made possible by this level of monitoring. Um, yeah, and, and, and I do think that in terms of where this goes in the future, I think that there are a couple of ways that we can we can think about it in terms of medical education. Uh, I don't know if Nick talked about, but already thinking about, and, and we talked about in the, in the paper, um, kind of the exciting, getting excited about additional monitors and, and um, what else can we measure, uh, you know, sleep. I'm interested in sleep. So um, that's one for sure that would be exciting to, to try to think about. 
sleep duration, sleep regularity, sleep quality. Um, and, uh, and, and then, which obviously, I mean, it has a, it's intricately linked with metabolic health as well. I think that the, there's an explosion of this kind of biometric feedback, um, these monitors that, that have me really excited. And hopefully uh, with improving technology, uh, there will be expanded access as well. Um, and kind of, you know, in the longer term, if not in the way that, that Nick kind of pioneered this with having it be a immersive kind of outside the curriculum endeavor, trying to incorporate it a little bit more so that, you know, as for example, when we're learning about blood, we draw our, our blood on our classmates. Um, right. and that was always from, fun. <laughs> right. And, and it's memorable, right? I mean, yeah. we, we remember that experience. And then whenever we're in class and we're talking about CBCs, we can think about that experience and we actually know to an extent what that is like. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I would envision and, and hope for one day having a similar experience with something like glucose. So when we're talking about a patient's um, or a case where a patient has a glucose level of 55, um, recognizing that, you know, that's low, but also some people dipped into 55 and, and um, when they were sleeping or whatever it is. Uh, and, and so kind of recognizing the, the different levels of, um, yeah, how, how things move as well. Next, we're going to hear from Dr. Melanie Honig. Now, Dr. Honig was the attending for this class where, where Nick and Mark and colleagues sort of dreamed up and executed this idea. So she was sort of the overseer and maybe kind of the spark to help encourage them along. Um, now, Dr. Honig is a nephrologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, an associate professor of medicine at um, Harvard Medical School. And she also said she's involved in a niche podcast called Channel Your Enthusiasm. And it's uh, sort of like a nephrology physiology book club for anybody who's interested. But, but let's get Dr. Honig's perspective on this study and kind of what she learned from it as well. Well, Dr. Melanie Honig, thanks so much for joining me today. And thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So we've already heard from Nick and from Mark about their experiences with this study. Now, you sort of see it as their, I guess you could say their advisor and their teacher and their, their mentor as, as, uh, as an attending at Harvard Medical School, um, helping teach them. So first, I want to get just your overall impression of what you thought about this experiment and how it came to be and kind of w what they went through. Absolutely. When Nick approached me and asked about doing this study during my course, uh, I, honestly, I was thrilled uh, because that's really what we hope for. Um, my course is called Homeostasis 2, which involves the kidney, the GI tract, and the endocrine system. So I think uniquely situated in the curriculum as an opportunity when students could learn about metabolism and how diet you know, interacts with uh, metabolism and the whole body. And so I, I, honestly, I was thrilled. We have a curriculum that is uh, the flipped classroom. In other words, students are asked to prepare in advance so that we can have some exciting dialogue in person, do problem sets together and, you know, work through complex issues. And so the idea that the students would be doing this at the same time that they're engaging in the curriculum was so exciting to me. I wish I thought of it. So... <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, let me ask you, if you had thought of it, would you have done anything differently? 
Uh, you know, the, the challenge is always hard. It's, it's very exciting to do something small with students and making it big is really the big challenge. And the way that our curriculum runs, we have four rooms with roughly 42 students. So this happened in one, I'll call it learning studio or learning suite. And so the large, uh, the, the majority of students in this learning suite were able to participate. But if I, you know, in my dreams, I, we could offer it to everybody. Right. Now, it seems like, you know, getting, hear, hearing the feedback from, from the students who are in it and, and, of course, Nick, who helped organize it, it seems like it was almost universally positive in terms of people, you know, it got them more engaged about metabolic, metabolic health. It got them learning more about the intersection of nutrition and metabolic health. But there's some concern that if you boil it down to nutrition and glucose, that you're really not seeing the whole picture and maybe prioritizing too much small glucose changes and what they might mean. Do you think that's reasonable concern? And did you see that play out at all within this cohort? Brett, that's a really good question. I think the issue is, you know, these are first-year medical students who are just beginning to embark on what we hope will be a four-year experience exploring how metabolism works, how a range of factors interfere with how or contribute to how uh, the body handles um, energy. And so, Although it is a very small lesson, if you will, because we're talking about glucose, I think it's a very important place to start. And the hope would be that then they would build on that. And so capturing, you know, starting small and having the students learn one thing. I mean, the excitement in this room, I wish you could have been there because it was so palpable. It was so like bristling with energy and students, uh, you know, showed each other their, uh, the results on their app and how they were doing and granted made small observations that may or may not be true because, you know, it's only one example at a moment, but it's still such a great place to start. And then the hope would be that if they do, you know, if they, if they find that interesting, if they find that, if that whets their appetite, and I'm sorry for the pun, then <laughs> perhaps then they'll engage in nutrition in a more meaningful way. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. I love how you describe the excitement, just to see the excitement on your face when you're talking about it, because as an educator, right, what's better than seeing the people you're educating being so self-motivated and excited about a project? I mean, that's what learning and exploring new things is all about. But let me ask you, did you, did this maybe change anything that you felt about CGMs and the role they might play? Did it, did it filter up towards you and impact your belief of it? Well, I, I would, I mean, I would share that a few, not, not this year, but I'm a nephrologist, as I had mentioned. So a few years ago, uh, in addition to, you know, the classroom learning, we often have patients come tell their stories and a colleague brought in a few patients who were wearing CGM to tell their stories. And at that point, I didn't even know that insurance companies would allow patients who did not have type 1 diabetes to participate with continuous glucose monitors. And that was practice changing for me because yeah. then I could um, at least advocate for my patients on the meaning of these. And that has honestly been a game changer. 
So, you know, so I would repeat that story in this class. And, uh, and I really got a kick out of watching the students learning from their own tracings. Yeah. Now, I think another sort of underlying theme through this, though, is that, and something that's come up a number of times in, in different podcasts I've done, is that the state of nutrition education within medical school is pretty bad. And that doesn't make it anybody's fault necessarily, but a statement of something that needs to be improved. So I'm curious from your standpoint, one, if you would agree with that statement and two, if you see a path to improving that level of education. Okay. That's a tough one. (laughs) Uh, You know, I would say that one challenge and, you know, uh, since I'm an older faculty member, I could say, you know, you know, there's always that temptation that, that, that we say to training as well when I was, you know, in training. And, and it's really different because I think that the, the burden on students and trainees is so great because mm-hmm. it's a fire hose of information. And so I think it's very granted. I think nutrition, I received no nutrition education myself. And I, I think that Um, Of course, we can always be better, but the students are up against a lot because there is so much to learn Mm -hmm. in nutrition and in elsewhere. And so I think having the lens that this is going to be the beginning of something is very important. So thinking about you know, engaging in it with my faculty, you know, and if you're lucky enough to have colleagues uh, or, or um, co- you know, students who are on your team like Nick and Mark uh, to begin that journey, but thinking about it as a lifelong journey that doesn't all necessarily have to happen, for example, in the pre-clerkship phase, but could happen throughout medical school and throughout, you know, learning. Yeah. I think that's a really good perspective that it's not You need to teach them everything. You've got them for a few years and teach them everything they need to know as opposed to instill in them the curiosity um, to continue to learn and to sort of plant the seeds. And it sounds like this experiment did exactly that. It really did seem to sort of plant the seeds about metabolism, about nutrition, about metabolic health, and is going to, I just would imagine everybody involved in this experiment would now be even more motivated to learn more. So do you, do you expect that to happen? Everybody in this whole cohort is just going to want to know more and get more curious and do more experiments. And this really is a kickoff to sort of bigger and better. Well, I hope so. Of course, you know, one flaw you could say of the study is that the students Mm self-selected. So the students who engage in this might already be primed to want to learn more. But my hope would be we do have a very nice course in the uh, post-clerkship phase. Uh, It's an advanced integrated uh, science uh, course. And it's a very nice course run by Marie-France Hivert and Chris Duggan. And uh, it's a very popular course. And so my hope would be that many students would take that. We have a handful of other nutrition electives. But I think it would be appropriate for students to be asking hard questions in a range of electives. Nutrition doesn't have to be taught only in a nutrition class, right? Right. It could be taught, uh, well, in nephrology, when we think Mm -hmm. about processed foods and sodium intake and so on. It could be in an, an endocrine elective. It could be during your surgery clerkship when you're thinking about uh, the use of enteral nutrition versus parental nutrition. And so I, I could envision it percolating through a curriculum and then beyond. 
Yeah, that's a fantastic point. You don't need to sit down and have a nutrition class, but when you're talking about wound healing or recovering from surgery, you talk about the importance of protein or you talk, right, and you exactly like you mentioned, if you're talking about type 2 diabetes, how could you not talk about nutrition as well to factor into that? So yeah, to rather weave it throughout the curriculum rather than have just one dedicated class or something. I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, and I I hope that that this type of experiment, that people are going to see it and medical students all over the world are going to see it and say, we can do that too and we can learn. So, I mean, it's clear you're doing something right to inspire the intellectual curiosity in this group and allowing them the room to uh, and the guidance to help them through this. So for that, I'm grateful and I hope it is an example for everybody else. I mean, I guess that's a, a great way to wrap it up. Uh, do you have any, any final um things to add or anything else you see for the future? No, I would just add that it's really important always to listen to students who are going to ask hard questions and maybe they will identify things we actually really don't know as well as we think we do. And so, uh, you know, this opportunity to work with these students was a highlight uh, of my year for sure. So thank you for letting me say that. (laughs) Ah, That is wonderful to hear. Thank you for sharing that. Well, that wraps up this compilation study about this pretty cool and pretty unique experiment brought on by the group of students at Harvard Medical School using the CGM as well as other metabolic health education to learn about metabolism and nutrition. Now, we addressed some controversy, and I think I think we can agree that the controversy came from a good spot, right? From, from reasonable points that it's not all about the flat line and the use of CGMs in healthy people is not validated um, by medical data with outcome data, but that doesn't mean it should never be done. I think we can also say that there are other things we can learn from it, and this was sort of an organized medical education type atmosphere that they were using this um, and how it's impacted them. I think it certainly seems like it was a net positive, but I don't want to discount um, the criticism because, again, I think it was well-rooted, although maybe not as equally ap- applicable to this situation as it is for other situations of using uh, CGMs in the general public. So there's certainly going to be more to come from that. CGMs are very popular, um, being used quite a bit, and I think we're learning a lot about how to appropriately or maybe not appropriately use them. So to be continued, but thank you for joining us on the Diet Doctor podcast.